0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to an emergency edition of Red Inca with me, Jared Kimber, to talk about the World Cup final. I don't think there's really a way to explain how big a moment this is for England to be holding two World Cups at the same time without really going back to the start. Actually, maybe not the start, weirdly enough, of limited overs cricket, but perhaps the middle. There had been two white ball World Cups played when England was still playing red ball limited overs cricket. So if you don't know the full history, we started playing limited overs cricket in whites with a red ball. Kerry Packer comes along in Australia for TV and that takes over. And by 1992, we have our first white ball World Cup. By 1996, we have our second White Ball World Cup and at the start of 1998, England are hosting South Africa in some one-days at home and they're using a red ball and whites. There was a tournament at the end of that summer where they changed it over to a white ball and blues. It shows you how far behind they got. They really weren't thinking about cricket in a very good way. And I remember doing research on just on how poorly England had gone, and I found the a list for the best 50 ODI players of all time. It was done in 2011 on Cricket Web, which is like a just a chat room, but it was a really exhaustive list, and they got a lot of different people to vote, and there's no way that it was uh, accurate. I mean, none of those things ever are, but they certainly did their work, and I couldn't find anything else, especially pre-2015 that was really anywhere near that good or that wasn't biased to one country or another. And to be fair to Cricket Web, they had cricket fans from all over the world being involved and very knowledgeable as well. When you go through their replies, um, and you can imagine, there's a lot of people arguing with each other in those replies. So the Cricket Web 2011 Best 50 ODI players of all time had one English ODI player, and the player was even more random. It was Neil Fairbrother who was, I suppose, a bit like Chris Harris and another one of these players who was a little bit like Michael Bevan, but not quite at the level of Michael Bevan. Now, Neil Fairbrother was a really good player, but it does say something that he's in the top 50 of all time and no other England players even made it. I remember in the, I'm trying to remember which press box it was. I think it's in the Pune press box. They've got a bunch of posters of great old photos of great players around their press box. And there's like little plaques on all of them. I think it's the Keith Miller one that might have the wrong name or something along the, those lines but now uh, when you go around one of them is Ian Botham and it says a fantastic test player but strangely a disappointment in ODI cricket and then you go back and you look at Botham's record and I think it was underwhelming considering what he had done in test cricket at his peak. But to be fair, ODI cricket got very big when Botham was no longer particularly at his peak anyway. He's probably not going to be in the top 50 ODI players or even in that conversation. And you go through it, David Gower's got this ridiculously high peak on the ODI ICC all-time rankings, but he averaged 30. I think Alan Lamb is an interesting shout because he had a fairly uh, high 30s average with a good strike rate for his era, but probably, again, not an all-time great. Robin Smith played that one great innings, of course, and a few others around it, but again, not as consistent as you want. Darren Goff was a really good one day. And then after him, you had Paul Collingwood and Jonathan Trott. None of these players are bad none of these are bad players. Jonathan Trott made the, an ICC ODI team of the year once. I think David Gower and Ian Botham certainly would have been, I don't know, what's the best way of putting it, in the all-time considerations if they take in the game a little bit more seriously. And Darren Goff was a really, really good bowler. I think he's got the 16th or 17th best strike rate in ODI cricket, minimum of 200 wickets. Like when We're not talking about duds, but we're also looking at that top 50 players of all time. And I'm not sure there is an England player who deserves to be in, even fair brother's case is he's 47 on the list. So it's not as if he's a huge star there. And so you do understand when you start to look at this, that England doesn't have this one day history that a lot of other teams had little successful periods where they were really good. When England were good at one day cricket, no one was playing it. And there's a really interesting thing that every time I talk about one day cricket, uh, and England, Adam Holyoke is mentioned. And so Adam Hollyoak was a very successful captain at Surrey. He's a really interesting player in the history of cricket. He bowled a knuckleball well before anyone else and had a lot of, he was a change-up bowler in an era that uh, it just wasn't really a thing. Even the Australian slowball bowlers weren't quite like Adam Hollyoak. And the interesting thing with all that is that his era as captain is mentioned a lot when you talk about English ODI cricket. And I remember not that long ago going. I wonder how many games he had because I don't remember him being captain that often. He captained fourteen games, and he did manage to win the nineteen ninety seven Champions Trophy. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It wasn't the ICC Champions Trophy though. It was a four team Champions Trophy, and that was his first run as as captain. And I think he won must've won four games there to win that tournament. It's still a multi-team tournament and Pakistan, India, and West Indies were all there. So it wasn't as if that it was a terrible tournament or anything, but from then on in, he only won two more games. And that, the fact that's still mentioned and is still fondly remembered is one part, of the story that I find really interesting when you talk about the history of English cricket. The other thing is that he only got 14 games and they moved on from him. And whether it comes to slow balls, tactics, the way he thought about limited overs cricket, I think Adam Hollyoak was clearly light years ahead of the rest of English cricket. I keep calling it white ball cricket. Remember, it wasn't white ball cricket at that time. And the the other interesting thing I found when going through the history was that in the 1980s, England were the second best ODI team in the world. Now, Second best in that era was quite a way back from the West Indies. West Indies had a win-loss ratio, I think, of over three wins per loss. And England were probably closer to about 1.2, 1.3. But even they did have that record. By the 90s, they'd move to second worst, if you don't count Zimbabwe and some of the other teams that only played a couple of times. Their second worst in the 2000s, again, if Zimbabwe doesn't make your list, or third worst if Zimbabwe do, and obviously Bangladesh would push them all the way up to fourth worst. <laughs> it's not particularly good. And so that whole 20-year period, if you look at the history of ODI cricket, and I'm probably, <laughs> probably one of the few people that is, I don't know if an expert on this is the right way of putting it, but obsessed with it is certainly right. One day cricket was very accidental in the 70s. And while the West Indies were the best team, there wasn't a lot of planning on it. In fact, the West Indies might have been one of the few teams that really thought about it a lot because they made a lot of money through Kerry Packer. And so they put a little bit more time in than the others. But most people didn't take it seriously at all. Most players only played it because they were getting paid to play it. It wasn't as if they were driven to do it. Think about the early period of T20. It was quite similar. By the 80s, Australia towards the end of the 80s gets to a point where they start coming up with formulas and they start looking at the way that it is played, running harder, fielding quite well, all these sorts of things which start to take over one day cricket. You then have New Zealand and 1992 when Martin Crowe's mad mind gets involved with it and he starts to come up with opening the bowling with spinners and having a middle-order player open the batting in Mark Greatbatch. By 1996, uh, Sri Lanka have turbocharged the top part of the game. And also, I think probably they thought about the middle over slightly different to everyone else as well, even if they don't get as much credit for that. That completely changes everything, not to mention just the amount of games that were being played. Teams like India and Pakistan... You go back and you have a look at their records. They're just playing one-day cricket all the time. And at that point, that's the professionalization of one-day cricket. That's what's led to what we have now with T20 and even the franchises and everything else. It all comes from that little period in the 90s. And the minute that ODI cricket starts to get played properly, people start to actually... I don't know. What's the best way of putting it? Think about it. Uh, Players, I remember talking to Ricky Ponting and I said to him, why did you take one day cricket seriously? And it's because he grew up watching it on TV, not realizing that all the other players weren't taking it seriously at that point. And so that whole generation comes through of players who really do take it quite seriously. And in some cultures, it ends up being the major form of cricket. It's different countries really take it seriously. And England don't. They don't transform to the white ball. They don't transform to colored clothing, which I suppose is the same thing. They don't move on. And when they have that tiny, like a camera flash of a flare up with Adam Holyoke, um, the minute it doesn't work for them, they completely move on from it. What's interesting is in 2010, when they win the World T20, and remember, it wasn't a World Cup at that stage. Look, T20 was very raw. People didn't really know what they were doing. They had, from county cricket, they had a few ideas, but. It wasn't planned for or anything. But if you go back and you listen to the England team, they did prepare quite well for that particular tournament. Certainly better than Australia, who they would go on to beat in the final. Should have been the canary in the coal mine that should have told us, wait a minute, there is something here. England, if they get their act together, there is something here. And it was interesting because I was in the UK by that time and I didn't see it coming. And yet I was totally obsessed with Pro 40 cricket. And I thought Pro 40 cricket was so good because it made the bowlers... Really think about striking more often with the ball, but also having to bowl when the batters were, were attacking them a little bit more. And it made, for me, watching some of the cricket, there was I could see how it was evolving the way that people were batting in that they had to bat long periods of time, but fast at the same time. It was that weird combination. And if you look at what happens next in English cricket, Pro 40 plays a huge part in it, but I was also there in 2015 at the World Cup watching uh, the, the game I covered live. I've actually probably covered a few games live, but the game I really remember was in Christchurch. At, it must have been Hagley Oval. And uh, they were playing uh, Scotland. And this is like a very, very amateur Scottish team at that stage. And in the first, I can't remember if it was the 25 overmark or the 30 mark, but whatever it was, England made more runs in the first part of the game when they didn't lose any wickets than they did later on. And we were watching them and just going, what is this? And I remember being really critical of them with George Jobel sitting beside me. And once they turned around, he goes, but this is as good as they are. And there was a point in Scotland's chase when I think Kyle Kutzer and Preston Momsen had put some runs together and they were chipping it around. And we were sitting there starting to work out mathematically how Scotland could win this game. And it was a 300-run chase. Like, Scotland should never have been in that game. This isn't the, the Scotland of a few years later that would actually beat England. This is the Scotland that was like, Literally had a chairman and a CEO, who was the same person who went around in tartan trousers having a good time. It was a completely different world of Scottish cricket. They were clearly building towards the team they've become now. But you were looking at it going, they've made 300 England, but Scotland are a chance of getting this. There just looked to be nothing particularly interesting or dynamic about the way that England played cricket at that point. They just they felt completely rancid. The next year, they are in the World T20 final. Oh. Let's just call it the T20 World Cup final. And they go within a Carlos Brathwaite of winning the tournament. That on its own, I think, tells you, A, how much talent they had that they weren't using, but also how quickly they understood the basics. And I think things have changed. I actually think there are much better... Thinking team than they were in 2016 and 2017 when they lost the Champions Trophy to um, Pakistan in that semi final. I think now they're not just a team that goes out there and Trevor Bayless gave them a license, but they've moved on from just having a license and they're actually very smart. They won the 2019 World Cup by playing a slightly different format of cricket than they wanted to. They won this World Cup by playing a slightly different format than they wanted to. The interesting thing is that. 2019 and this victory even 2016 and 2021 or 2017 you can throw them all in there because they've been so successful in making so many finals over that time you do look at the england team and you do think to yourself i'm not sure we've seen them at full strength firing in a world cup yet and yet they currently hold two different forms of world cup and they're a very big chance of going back to back again in the next one and this tournament They did it without a full-strength team as well. They were missing so many key players by the end, and yet they were still the most dominant team in the tournament. And when you listen to everything I've said, how they went from being for 23 years just a comically bad limited overs team with two little flare-ups, the ICC World T20 win and a Hollyoak win in a tournament that I had to Google to make sure that I even remembered any of the details of... How do they go from losing and being the second worst major team and being third worst major team and being a laughing stock? And in 2015, virtually not even being in the tournament at all, to being the first team in cricketer to hold two different format World Cups at the same time? You know, West Indies were, had their great period from 2012 to 2016. They were nowhere in one-day cricket. Australia, all these one-day World Cups, but in T20 cricket, just never really understood what they needed to be able to do. And by the time they were that good in T20 cricket and had that one good tournament last time, a little bit of luck on their side and everything else, their one-day cricket had fallen off. And they weren't even a major force probably in one-day cricket by that stage. It's incredible to think that we're talking about England being the best white ball team in the world. And we were saying it before based a lot on bilateral results and then winning an ODI World Cup at home. You know, now we're talking about them having won two World Cup, one at home, one away in two different formats. We've also got to start looking in the fact that they've made semi-finals of other tournaments along the way and a final of another tournament as well. If you're young and you've heard all this so far, you're probably thinking to yourself, they were actually that bad. But if you would lived through it, like anyone over the age of, I don't know, 35, you can't help but think, are they actually this good? Thanks for listening to Red Inca on 99.94. For more information about us, go to 99.94dm.com. Remember to download our app or just search for West Indies, India, England, South Africa and Sri Lanka with the search term 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. Also, support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by The Red Cricket.